church, if you would please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Old Testament reading will be verses 1 through 17. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. The New Testament reading and the sermon text will be 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 4, and also 3, 14 through 15. So, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Timothy 1. And I would like to remind everyone at this time to please uh, silence all your cell phones uh, if you have not done so already. So, so that, that's not a disruption during the, the preaching of God's Word today. 2 Samuel 7. Please hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Now, when the king lived in his house, that is to say, King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan spoke to David. So we consider that covenant that was transacted with David. We are to see that it had an immediate fulfillment in his son Solomon and in the kings that proceeded from them. But ultimately the fulfillment is found in whom? Jesus the Christ and his kingdom and his house which will indeed last forever and ever. And in fact as we will learn today in 1 Timothy this house of God is manifest in the church of the living God even now. Let us go now to 1 Timothy 1 look at, and look at verses 1 through 4 and then 3, 14 through 15. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Chapter 3, verse 14, Paul continues, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add his blessing to the preaching of the word this morning. I know that some of you have been wondering what our next study will be now that we've come to the end of the book of Ephesians. Well, well now you know, or at least I think you know. Uh, today I am introducing you uh, to Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, I had intended to inform you about this last Sunday in point two of that sermon, but I think you remember that that portion of the sermon was lost in my uh, manuscript. And although I was able to communicate to you the gist of, of that portion of the sermon uh, from memory, uh, many of the details were, were lost. And, and this announcement concerning 1 Timothy was, was one of those details. Um, I have told you in the past that Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and, and so it is in a general sense. But 1 Timothy is very precious to me as a pastor and also as a churchman. Though not all of you hold the office of pastor, most of you are churchmen or churchwomen. That term might be new to you, but I want you to grow familiar with it. If you have faith in Christ, you are to be a churchman. You are to be a churchwoman. For you are members of the body of Christ. You are citizens in Christ's kingdom. You are children in God's household. And this is what I mean when I say that you are churchmen. To be in Christ is to be a member of Christ's church. To love Christ is to love Christ's church. For Christ loved His church and He gave up His life for her. So that He might wash her and redeem her. First Timothy, along with the other so-called pastoral epistles of 2 Timothy and Titus are precious to pastors and churchmen alike. These letters reveal what the church of Christ is to be like. What kind of society is the church, we might ask. How is she to be organized? How is she to be governed? What is the church to be about? And, and Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus are very instructive concerning these things. I'm afraid that some Christians read these letters and forget that Paul the Apostle was writing to his fellow workers and his representatives. When reading these letters, we must always keep that fact in mind. These are not letters to churches in general, and therefore to Christians in general, but to Paul's fellow workers who were facing particular difficulties as they labored within particular churches to establish and maintain order within them. And so not everything that Paul says to Timothy and Titus will apply directly to all Christians. And we must keep this in mind. Nevertheless, everything that Paul says to them will apply, but sometimes indirectly. We must take the teaching and kind of filter it through that knowledge that this is not a general epistle, but this is a letter written to someone who is a minister of the Word of God within Christ's church. On a bit of a side note, perhaps you have noticed a little shift in the terminology that I am applying to Timothy and Titus. In the past, you know that I have called them pastors. But upon further reflection, closer study, I think it is better to call them Paul's fellow workers. 
Uh, perhaps we might even say that they functioned as evangelists or church planters within the early church. Uh, these men, if we pay careful attention to how they related to the churches of Christ in the earliest days of church, they were, they were sent to various churches as Paul's representatives, and they were sent to establish and maintain order in those churches. One of their responsibilities was to appoint elders and pastors uh, and deacons also. So Timothy and Titus, they functioned like pastors in these churches for a time, but they were, but they were unique in some respects. Uh, they were Paul's co-workers and representatives, as I have said. They were to help with church planting. Their work was to establish healthy churches. And I'm sure that it was not at all uncommon for, for Timothy, for example, to arrive uh, into some very messy situations as he went as Paul's representatives. He was being sent to churches probably because there were trouble in those churches. Ephesus, in fact, was probably a mess when Timothy arrived, as we will see and I think this tells us something about Timothy's leadership when we consider that Ephesus in the course of time was known for being a very mature church. Uh, so I think we see that Timothy was effective as, as a leader there. He went being sent by Paul to, to set the church in order because there were difficulties within it. And at some point the church did come to maturity. He must have cleaned things up. Now it is unclear if Timothy remained in Ephesus to become pastor of that church. Some say that he did, that he went from being Paul's representative, functioning perhaps as an evangelist and church planter in the earliest days, to, to, to a pastor. Some, some believe that he did, but it is hard to tell. When Paul wrote to him, he was functioning as his representative. And so we often refer to Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus as pastoral epistles. This has been my custom, and I think the term is fine, so long as we keep in mind what I've just said uh, these are not letters to churches and Christians in general, but they are letters to ministers of the gospel. Pastoral concerns are addressed in these letters. And so for that reason, it is helpful distinguish, to distinguish these letters from Paul's letters to the churches. Ephesus, uh, the, the book of Ephesians being uh, one of those. Um, but I personally will probably try to move away from calling these letters pastoral epistles to avoid the confusion. Uh, they began to be called by this name in the 18th century, pretty late in church history. And uh, the commentator, Philip Towner, suggests that we call them letters to co-workers. That doesn't have quite the ring to it, though, does it? Uh, pastoral epistles has a ring to it. Letters to co-workers doesn't, but uh, I think that is the term I will try to, to, um, to adapt to. Old habits do die hard, though, don't they? So we'll see how it goes. Uh, but what I have previously said does stand true. We must not forget that Paul was writing to fellow ministers of the gospel and not to churches in general, as we interpret and imply 1 Timothy in the months to come. On the other hand, I am also concerned that some will avoid these letters assuming that because they were written to ministers of the gospel, there is nothing for them here. You can see why Christians might think this way. Paul is not writing to churches in general, Christians in general, but to fellow workers. So there must not be anything here for me, for I'm not an elder or pastor within Christ's church. I think that is a very unwise approach to take. Um, in fact, we will find that some of the things that Paul wrote to Timothy will apply directly to all Christians. In chapter 4, verse 12, and also 15, Paul is commanded to be, uh, to, rather, Timothy is commanded to be a model for all believers. 
So before Timothy was a fellow worker of Paul's, he was a Christian. He was a Christian man first. And so many of the exhortations that are brought to him do apply rather directly to all Christians. And even these portions that have to do with Timothy's ministry, these will also apply to us, but indirectly. We will learn many things about the church, about the responsibilities of ministers of the gospel within Christ's church as we delve through the details of, 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 Tim, of Paul's letter to Timothy. We are going to learn a lot about the church, what she is, and how she is to be ordered. When reading Paul's letters to his co-workers, Christians will see that membership in Christ's church is a crucial component of the Christian life. We have not been saved by Christ to live as isolated individuals. No, instead we have been brought into a kingdom and we have been brought into a family. This means that we belong to a holy community or society. And as we consider these epistles, we will see that in Christ's church there are officers and members. We will grow in our understanding of what a pastor is called to do. We will also grow in our understanding of the nature and purpose of Christ's church. And, and this subject matter should be very important to every Christian and not just pastors. That is what I am saying. I hope that you are very interested in what Paul had to say to Timothy concerning a properly ordered church because we are all churchmen, or at least we should be. We should all have a deep love and concern for Christ's church. And I probably don't need to convince you that this teaching is desperately needed in our day. It seems that many Christians attend church without ever asking the question, what is the church according to the scriptures? Or what is the church to be about? Or what should I expect from a pastor? And it is not just that Christians and pastors are, are falling short of what God has called them to do. I, I fear it is actually worse than that. Many are failing to even ask the question, what is the church and what are we called to do according to the scriptures? Maybe that's true of you. You go to church, you know that you ought to, and so you do. But you never stop to ask the, the question, is this what it is supposed to be or what ought it to be according to the scriptures? And from my perspective, which I acknowledge is, is very limited, pragmatism drives the directions the decisions, rather, that are made in many churches today. Leaders within the church will ask, what should the church do? How should the church be structured? And what are my responsibilities as a pastor? But then to answer these questions, they will ask a further question, what will work? What will work? And by work, they mean what will bring more people into the organization. And so pragmatism rules the day. Pragmatism is when practical concerns drive the decisions that are made. Now, I am not saying that never should we be pragmatic. It would be foolish, I think, and even unloving to put unnecessary, unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of people or to fail to remove them if we can do so. In fact, I just made an announcement long ago that our service times will now be 9, 10, and 4 instead of 8, 9, and 4. That, that's a practical concern, right? It, it, it's hopefully going to make it easier for you to be here and to worship, and certainly we are free to decide when we meet on the Lord's Day to worship. The church is free to do that. But those practical concerns should not drive us. Instead, when we are wondering what the church is to be like and how it is to be structured and what it is to do, what the job of a pastor is, the next question that we must ask is, what do the Scriptures teach? What do the Scriptures teach? 
And we will find that the Scriptures have a lot to say about these questions. And we must be faithful to do what the Scriptures say within Christ's church. And of course, there is freedom there to make some of these particular decisions once we submit to the authority of Scripture in this regard. Now, setting aside the concerns that I have for the church in America today, let us be sure to examine ourselves in the course of this study and to ask, do we have a proper view of the church? Are we doing what God has called us to do according to the Scriptures? And are we prepared to do it for generations to come, even if faced with great difficulty? The whole of Scripture is useful to answer questions regarding our life together within Christ's church. But Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus are particularly enlightening. As we will soon see, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to encourage order within Christ's church and to further instruct Timothy concerning and I quote now, how one ought to behave in the household of God. And I think this is going to be a very good and timely study for us, uh, brothers and sisters. So now let us briefly consider Paul's introductory remarks. And after that, we are going to also briefly consider what he says in the middle of this letter concerning his purpose for writing. You will notice that the author of this epistle identifies himself as Paul. Traditionally, the church has believed this to be Paul, also known as Saul, the man who was converted on the road to Damascus, who was formerly a persecutor of the church, but upon conversion was used by the Lord to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the known world, and particularly amongst the Gentiles. You can learn all about Paul by reading the book of Acts, chapters 8 and following, and also his many other letters that are found in the New Testament, Romans through Philemon. There is really no good reason to doubt that this letter was written by that Paul. And Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. There is a lot there in that greeting. First of all, we see that Paul was an apostle. He was not the only one. There were, there were others. But I think it is very important for us to know what an apostle was. An apostle was an eyewitness to, the, to Christ in his resurrection. An apostle was one who was commissioned by the risen Christ to serve as his special representative. There were very few apostles in the earliest days of the church, and there have not been, nor will there ever be, any others. There were apostles and prophets present and active within the church in the days immediately following the resurrection and ascension of Christ. But remember how Paul spoke of them in his letter to the Ephesians, saying, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so there Paul describes the apostles and prophets as foundational. They are linked together with Christ. Together all three, Christ, the apostles and prophets, make up the foundation of the church and the church is built up upon them. Uh, the office of apostle, therefore, is to be viewed as foundational and not perpetual. We are not to expect there to be apostles constantly present amongst us. But they were there in the earliest days of the church along with prophets and even Christ himself to lay the foundation for the church of God. 
And consider also this, when Paul writes concerning the future of the church, he does not say that apostles are to be appointed within the church, but only elders and deacons. And elders, also called pastors and by other terms, they do not speak nor write with apostolic authority, but they are called to preach, to teach, and to preserve that which has been entrusted to them by Christ, the apostles, and the prophets. And so they have a different function. They are preachers. They are teachers. They are to preserve and protect and promote that which has been entrusted to them. And so why do I labor to convince you that there were apostles in the earliest days of the church, that these were a special group of men who saw the risen Christ and received a special commission from Him to function as His special representatives, but that there were no apostles, nor will there ever be any more after they who are commissioned by Christ pass from this world into glory. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Why do I... Why do I say all of this and labor to convince you of this, of this truth? Uh, well, I hope that you can see that it pertains to, to the study at, at hand. Um, are we to expect there to be apostles in our midst? That is a very important question for the church of Christ to ask in this present day. Are we to expect there to be apostles in our midst? After, after all, there were apostles present in the earliest days of the church, should we expect that pattern to be perpetual, the norm? Um, This teaching is crucial. Um, Are we to expect men to speak with the same authority that Paul and the other apostles spoke with? Should we expect to hear from prophets, men and women, who speak with divine authority, saying, Thus says the Lord? And the answer is certainly no. From the age of the apostles onward, again, we find pastors, teachers, and evangelists active within the church. These, as we will see, are to faithfully proclaim and defend the faith that was entrusted to them by Christ, the apostles and the prophets, their word being wonderfully preserved for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church, so-called, carries within it a foundational and fundamental flaw, and that is the belief that apostolic authority resides even to this day within the papacy. And so it is no wonder that after 2,000 years of church history, the Romanists promote so many false doctrines. Men who ought to proclaim and preserve the teaching of Christ and His apostles imagine that they speak with the authority of the apostles, though they do not. And it is a grave error. It's a fundamental flaw that has led to the severe distortion of the truth of the gospel. In that organization, justification is not received by faith alone, but must be earned. Mary is viewed as a co-redeemer alongside Christ. Prayers are offered up to mere men as worshipers bow before graven images in direct contradiction to the clear teaching of Scripture. How can this be? How can a so-called church conduct itself in this way when the Scripture's so clearly say otherwise. Well, the fatal flaw, if we are to get to the root of it, is that they believe apostolic authority remains within Christ's church today. And so the Romanists believe that the tradition of the church is authoritative alongside Scripture. Pentecostals and Charismatics make similar errors, but they play out differently in those traditions. But Paul the Apostle wrote to Timothy, his fellow worker, and Timothy was as we will see, to preach the word and defend the faith entrusted to him. His job was different than the job that Paul had. And in fact, Timothy was to appoint elders to serve in Christ's church. 
And they were to do the same thing, to preach and teach the word of God that had been entrusted to them. They were not apostles, nor were they prophets, but teachers. And so these facts are very significant, I think. Notice that Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul is an apostle. This means that he was a special messenger. And we might ask, well, of whom? Who are you a special messenger of? And the answer is, of Christ Jesus. And of course, you know who Jesus is. Uh, Concerning the word order, Paul seems especially concerned to remind us that this Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, who has come from the Jews. And Paul was made an apostle by the command of God. In other words, Paul did not make himself an apostle, but was made an apostle because it was the will of God. And this is, of course, true of everything that happens in the world. It happens because it is, it is the will of God somehow. Things happen because God has willed it. But here, Paul has in mind his miraculous conversion. If you know that story, then you understand that Paul did not make himself an apostle, but was made to be one by the command or will of God in a, in a very marvelous way. You can read the story for yourself in the book of Acts. In fact, we will come to consider it in 1 Timothy in due time. And notice that he is here called God our Savior. This God who, who, who made Timothy, uh, Paul to be an apostle by his will, he is called God our Savior. Does that catch your attention? We are so accustomed to referring to Jesus as our Savior, and, and so he is. Uh, But here, uh, Paul refers to God as our Savior. Both statements are, of course, true. God is our Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. And what Paul says here does confirm what we have been teaching you over the past month or so in, in catechism teaching. Our salvation is Trinitarian, brothers and sisters. Who saved you? Who saved you from your sins? And the most thorough answer is, God saved us. God the Father sent the Son to accomplish our redemption, and the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit to apply it. So it is God who has saved us. Paul refers to God as our Savior. And I think there will be reasons for this, uh, and we will see them play out as this letter progresses. He wants us to see that, that God has saved all mankind, that is, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, through Jesus the Christ. All are to be reconciled to the one true God, through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who saved you? God is our Savior. God, the God of all creation, the God of all mankind, is our Savior, and he has provided salvation for all mankind, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, through his Son, Jesus the Christ. He is our only hope. And that is what Paul calls him in this greeting. He refers to Jesus Christ as Christ Jesus, our hope. And so I might ask, do you have hope, friends? Do you have hope? Do you have real hope, lasting hope, hope that is sure? Hope is essential to life. Without hope, we perish inwardly. And most people hope in the things of this earth. They hope in the weekend. They hope in the next vacation. They hope for the raise. They hope for a comfortable retirement. They hope in other people, in power, in governments. They hope in wealth. They hope in family and friends. And these are all good things, but they are temporary. They're fleeting. They cannot be the source of true hope, for all of these things will fail us at the moment of death. People don't like to think about death, do they? They don't like to even consider it. Uh, Though it is the most obvious thing in the world, people die. 
They don't want to think about death because in truth they have set their hope in the things of this earth and they know, they know that those things will not sustain them in the moment of death or through death or in the life to come. True hope, hope that is lasting and sure is found only in Jesus the Christ through faith in Him. For in Him we have the forgiveness of sins and the promise of life everlasting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. And to whom was Paul writing? Verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, Timothy is never the central figure in the story that is told in the book of Acts. From Acts 13 onward, it is Paul, who is also called Saul, and his missionary journeys that take center stage. But if you read carefully through the book of Acts, you will notice that this man, Timothy, is often there in the background as a faithful companion to Paul. He is also mentioned in many of Paul's letters. Sometimes he is even named as the co-author. You know, we refer to that collection of writings in the New Testament as the letters of Paul, but in truth, many of them are letters of Paul and Timothy Together, consider Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Colossians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. I could also read 2 Corinthians 1.1, and 2 Thessalonians 1.1. I could read Philemon 1 also. These letters were authored by Paul and Timothy together. So, Although Timothy does not take center stage in the story of the spread of the gospel and establishment of the church under the new covenant, he was undoubtedly a very important figure. He was a close companion to Paul, a wonderful assistant. Oftentimes he functioned as Paul's representative to a particular church that was in need. Paul refers to him here as my true child in the faith. And this probably means that it was through Paul's ministry that Timothy was first brought to faith. Certainly it means that he was under Paul's tutelage as Timothy matured. Elsewhere, Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved and faithful child in the Lord, or as his fellow worker. I am here referring to 1 Corinthians 4.7 and Romans 16.21. He is called in 1 Thessalonians 3.2, God's co-worker in the gospel. Timothy is first mentioned in Acts 16.1, where we read that Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And so this mixed heritage of Timothy, his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, it would prove as a, a useful tool as he ministered with Paul, first to Jews and also to the Greeks. Uh, we know from 2 Timothy 1.5 that his mother's name was Eunice and his grandmother's name was Lois. And these were said to have sincere faith. And so I think there is some encouragement here for single mothers and fathers or for those who are married to non-Christians. We are to realize that Timothy, this very godly man who was used of the Lord, he was raised in a home where only grandmother and mother had sincere faith. I think there is some encouragement here for those who are the only believer in the household laboring to raise their children in the Lord. God can use that mightily. A careful consideration of the book of Acts and Paul's letters reveal that Timothy was often with Paul. 
He worked with him to plant many churches in many places and that he was often sent by Paul to minister to churches and places where Paul, for whatever reason, was unable to go. But when we consider what Paul says to Timothy here, we learn that he was relatively young, maybe in his 30s, and some think he was timid. Have you ever heard that about Timothy? He has this reputation for being timid, Timothy. Uh, in 4.12 we will read, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the example uh, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Why would, why would Paul say that? Well, Timothy was young. Some were probably despising him. In other words, just dismissing him, saying, who are you to, to rebuke me, perhaps? I'm twice your age, young man. And Paul says, don't let it happen. You have authority within the church, and you, to, are to, you must exercise that authority. Don't be timid, Timothy, but stand up in cases like this. And then... In 2 Timothy 1.7, we read that God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Some think that Paul was saying this to Timothy because he had this tendency to fear, that is, to shrink back in the face of opposition. Maybe he was timid. Perhaps he was tempted to shrink back in the face of opposition. But honestly, it is a little hard for me to imagine him being very timid. Given what he endured at Paul's side consistently over many years, and given the enormous pressures that he must have faced in the ministry, uh, this young man was strong enough to be sent time and again into some very difficult situations, messy situations, and to, and to sort them out. And so perhaps he was prone to timidity, but I think when all is considered, we must see that he was a godly man, a strong leader within Christ's church. Though Timothy was often at Paul's side, clearly they were apart when Paul wrote this letter to him. That is obvious. We know that Timothy was in Ephesus. Timothy had been a part of the work there with Paul, but when Paul moved on to Macedonia, Timothy was told, and here I am reading verse 3 of chapter 1, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy was serving the church in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter to him. Where was Paul, do you think? Where was he writing from? In fact, this is a little bit difficult to know. Uh, there are several theories. Some will find gaps in the narrative of Acts where it is possible for Paul to be separated from Timothy with Timothy located in Ephesus. Those theories get pretty complicated in my mind. Uh, the traditional view, which also has some support from the writings of the early church fathers, is that Paul was imprisoned in Rome and placed under house arrest, just as the end of the book of Acts tells us, that he was released for a time and then conducted a fourth missionary journey, which is not recorded in Acts, and then was imprisoned again and finally executed under Nero's reign. Uh, the traditional view is that Paul wrote this first letter to Timothy in that time between his first and second imprisonment. 2 Timothy was certainly written during his second imprisonment and not long before his execution. Where was Paul when he wrote to Timothy? It is hard to say, but he probably wrote this letter in about A.D. 63. Wherever Paul was and whenever he wrote, I want for you to notice how Paul greeted Timothy. He blessed him in this greeting, saying, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is a typical Pauline greeting. He often began his letters saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or something uh, similar to this. It was customary in the ancient world to begin a letter with a greeting, and Paul followed that custom, but his greetings were distinctly Christian. He always greeted his audiences in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. He pronounced grace and peace upon them. He blessed, blessed Timothy with grace and peace. It is because of God's grace, that is, His undeserved favor shown to us in Christ Jesus, that we are at peace with God. So there is a rationale to this greeting, right? There, there is, a, there is a, a progression that we are to see here. Paul pronounces grace upon Timothy, and this does lead to peace. And in fact, this is what happens in our lives really and truly. When we are born into this world, we are born enemies of God who stand guilty before Him, and we are deserving of His judgment. This is our natural state. We are sinners who stand condemned apart from Christ, but in Christ, through faith in Him, we are reconciled to God. We are made to be at peace with God. And this is why Paul addresses Christians saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are recipients of, of God's grace, and they are therefore at peace. They are at peace with God, and this is the foundation for the peace that resides within their own heart. And this peace within the heart is the foundation for the peace that is experienced within the Christian congregation. Do you see it? Grace to you. It's a reminder that Timothy was a recipient of God's grace. And this does lead to peace. Well, where does it bring peace? Well, first of all, in your relationship with God, you've been reconciled to Him. But not only that, you have peace within your heart because you are in right standing before God. And this peace within your heart ought to produce peace in your relationships with others around you. Have you ever noticed how if you are not at peace inwardly, the relationships that you have tend to also not be at peace? But if you are at peace inwardly, you, you, you do exude peace. You, you produce peace in the whole of life. And so the Christian, the one who has been redeemed by the blood of, of the Lamb, the one who has been made at peace with God ought to be characterized by peace in the, in the whole of life, peace within the heart, peace within the community because of that peace that we have with God. But notice that Paul also blesses Timothy with mercy, grace, mercy, and peace he blesses him with. Mercy and grace are similar, but they're not the same. Grace is undeserved favor from God. Mercy is the kindness of God bestowed upon someone who is in need. And so whenever mercy is talked about, there is some need, some trial, some difficulty that is in view that God is bringing us relief from. And Paul blessed Timothy with mercy, suggesting that he probably was experiencing difficulty. Grace, mercy, and peace all come from God and are ours in Christ Jesus the Lord. So now that we have briefly considered the opening of Paul's letter to Timothy, I want to wade out just a little bit into the body of this letter to consider its theme. What is this letter about? What is Paul's purpose for writing? And first of all, I think it is important to say that though Paul was indeed close to Timothy and though this letter is indeed warm and personal, it should also be recognized that it is not merely a personal and casual letter of correspondence. In other words, Paul was not merely writing to Timothy to say hello and to bring some encouragement to him as a friend. Instead, Paul, the apostle, 
was writing to Timothy, his co-worker and his representative, and he is charging him with particular responsibilities. You may look at 1.5 and verse 18, for example. Timothy is, is receiving marching orders from Paul. This is official business. It is warm and personal, yes, but this is, this is official business being conducted here. Secondly, notice that one of the things Timothy is charged with is to confront false teaching within the church in Ephesus. Timothy was to remain at Ephesus so that he may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine different, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Now, we will consider verses 3 and 4 more carefully next week, Lord willing, and we will discuss the nature of this false teaching that exists within the, existed within the church in Ephesus. But for now, simply notice that Timothy was to confront false teaching and the false teachers that had crept into Christ's church. He was told to defend and promote the truth of the gospel. And this theme runs throughout the letter. Thirdly, notice that Timothy is exhorted to establish and maintain order in the household of God. The first hint of this theme, order in God's household, is found in verse 4. It's a little bit difficult to detect in our English translations. These false teachers that Timothy was to oppose were encouraging others, listen carefully now, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And, And what did this produce? What did it promote? Well, it promoted speculations within Christ's church rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That word which is translated as stewardship might also be translated as good order or administration. The meaning is this. Instead of being devoted to myths and to genealogies which lead only to speculations and thus to controversies and chaos within Christ's church, Timothy was to devote himself to things that would lead to good order within God's house. And where does this stewardship or good order come from? It comes from God. Our God is a God of order and He does bring order wherever He is present. And it also comes from faith, as you could see there. It comes from the faith. And so Timothy, instead of devoting himself to genealogies and myths which promote speculations, we are going to see that he was to devote himself to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God within the Christian congregation. And this, the preaching and teaching of God's Word, the the presentation of the Christian faith consistently would produce this good order uh, that ought to be present within Christ's church. The faith is to be promoted and defended and good order within the church will result. Uh, This theme is present throughout this letter. But Paul explicitly says that he is writing for this reason in 3.14-15, which was read earlier. Again, listen carefully to this. The Apostle says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you, Timothy, may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the church. These verses are very significant. We'll consider them in more detail as we come to them again in the study of this text in the months to come. 
But for now, notice three things very briefly. One, Paul refers to the church. The church of Ephesus, and by way of implication, any and every local church, as the household of God and the church of the living God. These are marvelous descriptions of the church, aren't they? This is marvelous terminology that is being applied to the church. And having just considered this theme in our study of Ephesians, I'm not going to belabor the point here, but Paul had a marvelously high view of the church. He saw the church as the bride of Christ, the earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God, the assembly of God's new humanity, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is not new to you. You know this. But here we see that he refers to the church as the church of the living God, the household of God. And so the church is God's church. He is alive within her. And the church is the household of God. It is made up of those who have been adopted as sons and daughters. These have God as Father, and these are to live as brothers and sisters in Christ, united to the Son. The church is a holy society, therefore. It is the assembly of those who have been reconciled to God and belong to Him, having been washed in Christ's blood. God dwells in the midst of her, and He is with His people. The church is marvelous. It is the most glorious institution on the face of the earth today. It is where God manifests His glory presently. This was Paul's view. And because of that, too, because the church is the household of God, it must be properly ordered. The world is filled with sin, but the church is to be set apart as holy. The church is a society of those who believe upon Christ, have been washed in His blood, adopted as sons. God's household is to be properly ordered, therefore. And that is why Paul wrote, so that Timothy may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church is to be characterized by good order. It is to be characterized by holiness. Three, Paul calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is set apart by the truth. It is ordered according to the truth. And one of its functions is to put the truth on display to the world and also to defend this truth. We will talk more about this when we come to this text again in the course of this study. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. These remarks that I've made this morning, they're only introductory. We will move more carefully through 1 Timothy in the months to come, and these themes will be fleshed out. But for now, I do challenge you in this way. Think deeply about the church in light of the Scriptures. What is she? What is this thing, this institution, this society? What, what is she? What is her nature? What is her purpose? What should be expected from her members? What should be expected from her ministers? And we must be aware of our presuppositions as we ask this question, brothers and sisters. Our thinking has certainly been affected by our situation in life, our culture. We must be willing to acknowledge those presuppositions, to set them aside as much as we are able, and to consider the scriptures with care, asking, are we behaving as we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth? Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have saved us. 
not only individually, but corporately also. We know that you are redeeming a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to bring them safely home into the new heavens and new earth. We thank you for the church. Uh, what a precious thing she is, the bride of Christ, redeemed by the blood of Christ, the household of God. Father, may we view her uh, according to the truth of your word. May we have in our minds uh, what it is that, that, that she is. May, may we have that clear in our minds. And may we, as individual Christians, therefore operate and behave accordingly. Father, we ask that you would bless this church, this congregation. May we bring you all glory, honor, and praise. It's in the name of Christ that we say these things and all of God's people say, Amen.